Emeritus Professor David Wolfe holds a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in the United States. Professor Wolfe has been a faculty member at a number of universities, the University of Chicago, the University of Washington, and the University of New Mexico, where he was the winner of the Best Teacher Award for several years. Professor Wolfe is a founding member, president, and director of the Oppenheimer Institute for Science and International Cooperation. He opened Oppenheimer branches in London, Ekaterinburg in Russia, and in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan. He has given a number of invited talks to the Oppenheimer Institute. Professor Wolf has also been an experiment manager at CERN in Geneva in Switzerland. He has more than 140 physics and medical publications in refereed journals. Professor Wolf makes a major contribution to education in this country. He is a visiting academic at UCT and teaches each year after summer school on an academic development program in the engineering department. He also works in collaboration with the United Kingdom Institute of Physics, the South African Institute of Physics and the University of Johannesburg to run teacher training workshops for secondary school physical science teachers. On this program, Professor Wolf teaches pro bono the workshops and trains the tutors to be trainers for the future. Professor Wolf assists with raising of funds to pay for this initiative. Professor Wolf, outside his working life, has a deep interest in classical music and is multilingual. He speaks Swedish, French, German, Italian and Russian. How can we define music? Many people have given definitions. As this is a talk about music and mathematics, I've chosen a definition from a man, a composer, often regarded as rather mathematical, not particularly romantic, Arnold Schoenberg. Yet, this is how he defines music. Music is a succession of tones and tone combinations so organized as to have an agreeable impression on the ear and its impression on the intelligence is comprehensible. These impressions have the power to influence occult parts of our soul and of our sentimental spheres, and this influence makes us live in a dreamland of fulfilled desires or in dreamed hell. Now, most central to music are pitch or melody and rhythm. Pitch is very central in Indian societies. If we think of the step between a white key on the piano and its neighboring black key, that's of course called a semitone. This is the smallest step in Western music. In Indian music, however, they use steps half that size, quarter tone intervals. Now, here is an example in Western music of melody. That is Beethoven's Spring Sonata, an old recording by uh, Henrik Schiering and Arthur Rubinstein, one which I chose because uh, as a youngster I heard them actually play that. Rhythm is more central to sub-Saharan Africa, where rhythmic variations can have a dizzying metrical complexity. I could also add timbre, the quality of the tone as well, something that separates a Stradivarius violin from, say, a plastic model. 
Now, there's a long history of the relationship of music and mathematics, and this means that I have to talk about numbers a bit. And I know that some people, when you mention mathematics, um, get upset or go blank. But mathematics is the way nature speaks to us human beings, and we need it to make sense of our world. While these two subjects began together, they are not considered deeply related today. Here I have an object beside me called a monochord, which is just a metal wire stretched to some length, fastened at both ends. And if I pluck it, what happens is known to every player of any stringed instrument. The pitch I get depends on the length of the string, the tension, how taut the string is, and on the thickness of the string. This latter thickness is what physicists would prefer to change to the mass of the string, and we conveniently divide it by the length, so we talk about the mass per meter. Now suppose we have some way of fastening the string at various points along its length. Suppose I make it half as long and I pluck it and I get a tone that is exactly twice as high. This is called an octave higher. Uh, we use the word octave in the West because that's, the, that's what the Greeks did. They divided this octave interval into eight parts. Now, there's no basis in doing this other than perhaps eight is a power of two, two times two times two, two cubed. The Chinese would divide this interval into five parts, Arab cultures into 17 parts, Indian cultures into 22 parts. The Greeks called this doubling because the length is halved, and what we call the frequency of this note is double the original. And this interval is called diapason, or dividing in two, in Greek. But now suppose I divide the string not into two, but into one-third and two-thirds. If I pluck the longer part, I get an interval called a fifth related to the entire string. If my original note were a D on the piano, then a fifth higher, the, the two-thirds, would be an A, a fifth higher. And the ratio of that A to the octave D above would be a fourth. And these are string ratios of two to one, yielding an octave, two to three, giving me a fifth, and three to four, giving me a fourth. These are called harmonic intervals, the octave, the fifth, and the fourth, and they are based on the integers two, three, and four. The idea of harmony, this word we get from the Greek for a fitting together or a concord, comes from the philosophy of Pythagoras, that generator of the square of the hypotenuse theorem, and also the originator behind of the patter song that Gilbert and Sullivan wrote so brilliantly in Pirates of Penzance. His school based their philosophy on the ideas of mathematics and harmony, and the idea of the music of the spheres comes from them. 
The idea was that the ratio of the distances between the various crystal spheres on which the planets rode were arranged in such a harmonic series of octaves, fourths, and fifths. These ideas were being taught up until the time of the Renaissance, meaning they lasted some 2,000 years. It came to be part of classical education with the birth of universities in the 12th and 13th centuries. Students in these universities were taught two basic categories, the three subjects of the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and four subjects of the quadrivium, arithmetic, that is number, geometry, number in space, music, number in time, and astronomy, number in both space and time. This quadrivium comes directly from Pythagoras as elucidated by the last serious Roman thinker who knew Greek, Boethius. Why are some sounds pleasing to our ears, music is an example, and some quite unpleasant, say the screech of car brakes? And the answer lies somewhere in this word harmony and the simple ratios of vibrations. And this is perhaps the key to the link between music and mathematics, whereby the simple integer ratios of string vibrations, or really sound waves, is somehow interpreted by our brains as pleasant, while those vibrations which are not related by integer ratios are unpleasant or raucous. But using this information about ratios, we can make a musical scale. We know the C major scale, Do, Re, Mi, etc., a scale that starts with C and has all the white notes on the piano. The syllables themselves, by the way, come from a Latin hymn in honor of John the Baptist, created by the 8th century Lombard historian Paulus Diaconus. The syllables from the first lines uh, in Latin are ut, re, mil, fa, so, la, si. The first syllable, ut, which is still used for C major in German, was replaced by the syllable do when sight singing or solfeggio became important in the 17th century. The man who did this was an Italian with the surname Doni, so he used the first syllable of his family name. Finally, the last C was changed to T by an Englishwoman in the 19th century so that each note had its own unique sound. The verse in an English translation from the Latin would be, Do let our voices resonate most purely, miracles sterling, far greater than many, so let our tongues be, lavish in your praises, St. John the Baptist. Now let's create a scale using only the idea of fifths. Instead of starting with C, I'm going to start with the D just above middle C, and we'll see why in a bit. Now I'm going to raise that note by a fifth, and that gives me an A. And if I lower the D by a fifth, I get a G below middle C, but I'm going to move it up an octave and put it in the same octave as the D, the G, and the A. So I have three notes, D, G, A, D, and the original D. And now, if I raise the E, the A, by a fifth, I get an E. Okay, and if I lower the G by a fifth, I get a C, and I'm going to put them all in the same octave again. So I have now D, E, G, A, C. Five notes I've made only by moving a fifth. 
each time. That is a pentatonic scale. It's very commonly in use. It is the oriental scale, but it's also the scale of much folk music. For example, I played Old Lang Syne with only five notes, D, E, G, A, and C. There are other famous melodies in a pentatonic scale, such as Gershwin's Summertime. We could continue this game, and I could lower the C by a fifth, and I get an F. And I could, last but not least, I could take the E and I can raise it by a fifth, and that gives me a B. And what I then have is D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D. I have an eight-note scale with only the white keys on the piano. It's a seven-note scale, if you will. D, E, G, A, B, C, back to D. It's all the white notes starting with D. This is a Greek scale, and it's called the Doric scale. And I got it by raising and lowering various notes by a fifth. And this seems, of course, a rather random process, raising and lowering. And it's not likely that this is the way music developed, but it is how the Pythagorean system developed. I could have done it differently. I could have continuously raised by a fifth, and I get another seven-note scale, again using only the white keys on the piano, but I would have to start with F instead of D. This is called the Lydian scale. I could have continually lowered seven times by a fifth, and that would give us the Locrian scale, as it is called, but it's... These are not major or minor scales. They are seven-note scales based on just the fifth, just the ratio of two and three. Socrates associated different the Doric scale, the one that starts on D, with courage and determination. But he associated the Locrian scale, which starts on B, with indolence and softness, different modes expressing different feelings to the Greeks. In fact, I can get similar Greek scales starting on any note. These ideas, as I said, were being taught up until the time of the Renaissance. They lasted 2,000 years. Church music, really almost the only music we know of during the first thousand years of the Common Era, is all based on this system. In a church council, however, in 367 of the Common Era, congregational singing in church was banned, so there was then a need to have choirs and priests trained in singing. Music in the very early church was called plain song, based on Pythagorean Greek scales, and and this is originally, however, music derived from the synagogue. This led, of course, to Gregorian chant, again based on this ancient Greek model. It is attributed, probably incorrectly, to Pope Gregory the Great, the pope from 540 to 604 uh, of the Common Era. One high male voice singing the Greek scale to Latin words of the Mass or Requiem.
that, of course, is Dies Iri Dies Ila, the second part of the Requiem Mass. After a few hundred years, though, a bass line was added, sometimes improvised, and a fifth or even a fourth apart in a variation called organum and was used by monks with a tenor and bass line together. The eventual complications of this system led to the polyphony of the High Middle Ages. Anyone visiting some of the great medieval cathedrals will notice that the nave often has two organs which were used for polyphonic music. Polyphony is a composition in parts with each having a melody of its own, and it's used today primarily in Orthodox churches, both Greek and Roman. Now let's go back about a thousand years to the Greek astronomer Ptolemy, who died about 150 of the Common Era, who added to this harmonic idea. This particular Ptolemy is also the person who codified a model of the universe based on the Earth at the center. This model lasted again about 1,500 years and was in fact quite accurate in predicting positions of the planets in the heavens even though, of course, it is completely wrong. He made an improved version of the original Pythagorean model of the universe, also based on harmonics, that is, the, the music of the spheres. Here, all of the planets were arranged in a harmonic series, the distance between the Earth and the Sun corresponding to a perfect fifth. But in order to get all of the planets in, he said, why stop with the numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4, all of which give such pleasing intervals? Why not add the number 5 to this series? And he needed this to fit his ideas of the planetary positions. If we do this, the ratio 5 to 4 gives us a major third, four-fifths of a string. But it was not considered harmonious by the Pythagoreans, although it sounds rather pleasing to us today. If I move the string to a position 4 and 5, compared to the basic string, I am up a third. But the original Pythagorean set of scales was the one that persisted, with thirds being considered not harmonious and therefore ignored. Now, the great Greek written words disappeared from Western Europe during the first millennium of the Common Era. But the Crusades and the reconquest of Spain by Christians brought the West into contact with Arab culture and through them with the works of the Greeks which they had saved and translated into Arabic. 
the idea of the interval of a third became common and was used in the new forms of rapidly growing secular music, such as that of the troubadours in the High Middle Ages. This led to a new scale similar to, but slightly different from the old Greek one. I'm going to now divide our string into one-fifth and four-fifths. And as I said, the ratio of four-fifths of the string to the whole string gives us the interval of a third. So if I start with a C and I go up a third, the ratio of five to four of our string, we get an E. And if I go up a fifth from the, the C, I get an, a G, and so I have now the C major triad. If I take the E and I go up a fifth, I get a B. And up a fifth from a G gives me a D. And so I have a five-note scale. Again, a pentatonic scale, but I can go down a fifth from the C and get an F, which I can add, and I can go down a fifth from the E and get an A, and um, lo and behold, I have the C major scale. The notes are close to, but again, they are not exactly the same as the Pythagorean scale based on C, which is called Ionic scale. And the difference is, of course, because I used five four-fifths instead of just one, two, three, four. Okay. Now, this tuning based on the, on the simple integer ratios one, two, three, four, five is called just tuning, and this lasted for over 400 years. Okay, so we have two sets of scales now. We have the Pythagorean set, one, two, three, four, and we have just one, two, three, four, five. But the just scale has problems. If I work in C, it's just fine. But suppose I want to transpose to a new key of F major, as composers wanted to do from the 16th century, that is called modulate to a new key. And the reason for this has to do with the black keys on the piano. If I, if I go a fourth up from the F, I would get a B. But the B I get by going up a fourth is a little bit flatter than the B, so I call it a B-flat. And if, on the other hand, if I uh, want to go from modulate, say, from C major to B major, from C to B, then I have a problem because I get an A in that. And that A, however, is sharper than the 440 hertz A that we would normally get uh, from, say, the tuning of an orchestra. So I will call that A sharp. The problem now is that under this tuning, A sharp and B flat are not the same note. They are not the same frequency of vibration. In just tuning, the difference between these two notes would be 
uh, would be audible, we could hear it. It would be about 15 vibrations per second. I would need now two black keys on my piano between the A and the B, and that's crazy. With a violin, one can play these notes separately, but you cannot on a guitar with frets or a woodwind with finger holes or a keyboard instrument. Now what can we do? Either we have to give up key changer modulation or else we need to invent new scales, and composers decided to do the latter. This idea of changing keys or modulation, as I said, was popular by the late Middle Ages with the growth of secular music. So to help with this, plus the use of fretted instruments with fixed intervals, we're going to make some changes to just tuning. Remember that an octave is a change in frequency of two corresponding to dividing the string in half. I'd better define the word frequency. Frequency is the number of vibrations of a string or of a pendulum or of anything that varies in a regular pattern, the number of vibrations each second. If I imagine a pendulum bob swinging back and forth in a clock, tick, tock, tick, tock, each cycle it goes uh, a half over and ticks and then back talk so it makes one full cycle back and forth every two seconds so it it makes one half of a full vibration each second and i would call that having a half a vibration per second if i have one vibration per second or two vibrations per second whatever that's a particular number and I give that a name rather than calling it vibrations per second or cycles per second which is complicated it's now called a Hertz which is abbreviated HZ and is named after the man who discovered radio waves Heinrich Hertz one complete vibration per second is one Hertz the concert A with which the oboe starts the timing of the orchestra is much faster it's 440 Hertz in an octave on the piano, we have seven white keys and five black keys. So there are 12 steps in an octave. And I want to divide that those 12 steps into exactly equal parts or equal frequencies. That means that the difference in frequency between any two consecutive notes is exactly the same change of frequency as any other two notes. In just tuning, not every interval has the same difference. So I want to now take 12 steps of such a difference apart that 12 of them gives us exactly two, the difference in frequency in an octave. This is like taking some unknown quantity. I could even call it x, for example, and I multiply it by itself 12 times, x times x times x, etc. This is called raising x to the 12th power. And to solve for x, I'd have to take the 12th root of 2, which is a difficult task. But how big must the steps be? This is a maths question. As a schoolboy, I had to learn how to actually take square roots and cube roots with pencil and paper. Twelfth roots is very hard. It's two square roots and one cube root. I don't want to do that. And this is where the invention of logarithms by the 16th century Scot John Napier comes in usefully. So if I use logarithms, the answer to this is each step, each x, must be the following number. 1.0594630940 hertz. 
if I multiply that self, that number 1.059, etc., by itself 12 times, I get 2. So for an A at 440 hertz, A sharp and B flat will be exactly the same at 466.2 hertz. B natural is 494. C is 523. If I middle C is half of that, or 262 hertz, uh, whereas in just tuning, it would be 264. And that's probably not audible to most ears. But logarithms are a fantastic tool for describing information with a big variation. In fact, the origin of this kind of problem is an ancient Indian legend where Lord Krishna, in disguise, comes to play a game of chess with a king who is a great devotee of the game. The king promises any reward for his visitor if he loses, which of course he does because he's playing Lord Krishna. The answer is a few grains of rice, doubling on each square. I start with one, then two, then four, etc. But there are 64 squares on a chessboard, and two raised to the 64th power is a huge number. It is 18 million trillion grains of rice. Um, and that may be more than all the grains of rice in the world. But now that we know how to divide the octave into 12 exactly equal frequency steps, we can create an instrument with what is called equal tuning rather than the old just tuning, itself a variation on Pythagorean tuning. So let's recall, Pythagorean tuning involved fourths, fifths, and octaves. Just tuning added thirds, but the steps were not equal. Equal tuning means just exactly that. Each step, each half tone is exactly the same. The origins of who first used equal temperament are not apparently well understood, but it certainly began appearing in China and Europe, both in the 16th century. About the first music we know composed in equal tuning was actually written by Vincenzo Galilei, more famous as the father of Galileo Galilei. Je uh, equal tuning was used by such familiar names as Girolamo Frescobaldi, but hated and opposed by people like Giuseppe Tartini, people whose music is still played. Eventually, of course, the idea was settled because Johann Sebastian Bach wrote the well-tempered clavier, where he used every one of the 24 keys, 12 major and 12 minor, to write the most fantastically wonderful fugues uh, probably ever written. This system of equal tuning is not perfectly harmonious because it does not involve integer ratios, and some discordant intervals do exist. And there were arguments in the 19th century with people complaining about, quote, the ugliness, unquote, of some of the sounds. 20th and 21st century ears seem to have grown accustomed to this system, although Paul Hindemith has written music using just tuning. We really need to ask now, what is sound anyway, and to make a better definition of some of the terms I have used. Sound is a series of vibrations. For us, living in a bath of air, it means vibrations of air molecules. Air molecules get pushed by the source, they hit one another, and they pass that original movement along. The vibrations of air molecules bumping into one another makes the wave travel from source to ear. 
is as if we had a long line of people. You push the first a little, who pushes the second, etc., until the last person moves. No one moves very much, but the original push gets transmitted quickly to the end. The human ear, at its best, can hear from about 20 hertz to uh, about 20,000 hertz. As we age, this range, of course, gets smaller, in fact, significantly smaller. The human ear, however, is a phenomenal instrument. It consists of three parts. The outer ear, the one we can see, is called the pinna, and its peculiar shape is designed to focus vibrations down the canal onto the eardrum. The vibrating air molecules moving back and forth in their vibrational mode press upon this membrane, the eardrum. These vibrations have to be transmitted to the inner ear where the nerves are located that connect to the brain and translate vibration into recognizable sound. But the vibrations of the eardrum are very small. In fact, they are unbelievably small. At the threshold of our hearing, we can hear sounds that correspond to moving the eardrum back and forth by the distance of approximately 1% of the size of an atom. Atoms are very small. 1% of that size is amazingly small, about a billionth of a millimeter. But a good young ear can detect that, and I find that absolutely amazing. To get these minuscule vibrations into the inner ear and the nerves, we need an amplifier. Most of us are familiar with amplifiers, particularly those old enough to remember the days of hi-fi when we bought amplifiers for our turntables, and of course some people still do. These amplifiers are all electric, and electric amplifiers are inherently noisy. That is, they introduce distortion and interference. Better amplifiers are mechanical, which have better fidelity. And this may not be possible for our speaker systems, but that is what nature has given us in the middle ear. This is an almost closed compartment with three tiny bones called the stapes, which amplify the vibration of the eardrum and transmit these larger motions to the inner ear membrane. This middle ear is connected to the mouth by a tiny tube, the eustachian tube. It allows us to equalize the pressure between the middle ear and the outer world. If we get a cold or a rapid change in outside air pressure, the eustachian tube can get blocked. With a cold, it's possible for the middle ear to get infected, which is quite painful, as anyone with small children knows. In airplanes, the rapid change in air pressure during descent can also be uncomfortable. The inner ear is filled with fluid and tiny hairs of varying length. These hairs are connected to nerves via synapses, and when they receive vibrations of a certain frequency, the hair corresponding to that frequency moves, sends a signal to our brain, which then interprets it as sound. It is interesting that we can hear several sounds of different frequencies at the same time, something we would call a chord, but we cannot see chords of separate color with our eyes, even though light is a wave itself. We only see the resultant blend of color. Vibrational frequency is a fairly straightforward concept, but the question of the pitch associated with frequency is not. The most common note used to set tuning is one near the top of the male voice, but in the middle of the female voice. It is the A in the fourth octave of a modern piano, and called therefore A4. 
In this notation, middle C would be called C4, and all notes are denoted similarly. In olden times, with poor communication in the world, there was no unanimity about the frequency of A4. In France, where organs from the Middle Ages still exist, this note was often very low, about 380 hertz, while German uh, organs often had it quite high, close to 500 hertz. By the 18th century, there was a bit of standardization, but Handel's tuning fork, which still exists, set A4 at 422.5 hertz. But the creation of symphony orchestras in the 18th and 19th centuries meant that there were attempts at more regularity. The word symphony itself means a blending of sounds together, so finding a uniform tuning pitch became more important. Then in 1858, the French government created the Diapason Normal, setting A4 at 435 hertz. The British, never ones to agree so easily with the French, decided that this was determined at too low a temperature, and that lowers the pitch, so they switched to 439 hertz. And then finally, at long last, in 1939, the International Standards Association, which sets the metric system standards, set A4 at 440 hertz. A few more mystically oriented musicians still preferred C4 as 256 hertz as a more philosophically based pitch, but there aren't very many of those. Since music comes to us as does any sound in the form of vibrations, we need to consider them a bit more. The easiest vibrations to understand, because we can see them, are those of a pendulum or a string. And I'll consider the string for now, as it's used in so many musical instruments. I mentioned earlier that the frequency of vibration of a string depends on three things, the length, the tension, and the weight of the string. The longer the string, the slower its vibration, the lower the pitch. We need to understand something about waves and how they behave and various definitions. Waves are how we speak of vibrations and they come in two basic forms. Stringed instruments, the violin, the piano, the guitar, etc., act in basically the same way. The string is moved from its position of rest. This may be by the bow of a violin, or the hammer of a piano, or the finger or plectrum for the guitar. It's moved in a direction perpendicular to its length, and it vibrates back and forth perpendicular to its length. Therefore, such waves are called perpendicular waves, or to use a different Latin word for perpendicular, they are called transverse waves. Sound waves, however, are quite different. They are composed, as we've said, of vibrations of air molecules. Air molecules are always moving. They move at high speeds and in random directions. They have all sorts of speeds because they collide with one another and with the walls, etc. But we can define an average speed. And at room temperature, the average speed of an air molecule is about 500 meters per second, about the speed of a bullet. Obviously, they don't hurt us because they're so light, but they do do a lot of interesting things like keep our lungs from collapsing and lift airplanes off the ground. The numbers of them are staggeringly large as atoms and molecules are so astonishingly small. If we could take the number of air molecules in an average-sized room and string them end to end, they would circle the Earth 25,000 million times. 
A number I like to illustrate the enormity is that the number of molecules in a glass of water is greater than the number of glasses of water in all the oceans and lakes on the earth. An astonishing number when I go out and I look at the Atlantic off the coast of um, Cape Town. As mentioned, air molecules are moving and their motion is random. This energy of motion is what we call heat. The average speed measures what we call temperature. In a sound wave, however, there's a regular motion impressed on the random high-speed motion of the molecules. But the motion is not perpendicular to anything. Just as with a line of children I mentioned, one pushing the other, which pushes the next and so forth, then sound wave pushes molecules is in the direction of the wave travel. And so since it's along the wave, it's called an along wave, or to use again the Latin word, a longitudinal wave. Since it's easier to vibrate, to visualize rather, a vibrating string, I'll stick to that for a bit, although the same discussion applies to both sorts of waves, transverse and longitudinal. Remember that a string, a piano or a violin, etc., is fixed at both ends and these ends cannot move. But a string that can vibrate up and down, back and forth, etc., at one hertz can and will vibrate at two hertz. But at two hertz, the middle of the string will not move any more than the ends of the string. But it can also move at three hertz, at four hertz, etc. The lowest frequency, the simplest one that can exist, is called the fundamental. The integer multiples of this fundamental frequency are called harmonics in physics and either harmonics or overtones in music. A bowed string can vibrate in all of these harmonics at the same time and thus contains many overtones. A pure sound, such as that from a tuning fork, has just one tone, the fundamental, and doesn't sound very pleasant to the ear. It's the combination of overtones or harmonics that makes music sound so pleasant. A flute, for example, contains far fewer overtones than a violin, and we often say the violin sound is richer. The octave, remember, is the difference between the fundamental tone and the next harmonic. And I've already discussed the harmonic series where the overtones are twice the frequency, three times, etc. And if I play that on the piano, we get the following series. Fundamental, first harmonic, next one, next one, a major third, a minor third, that's up to six, and then trouble. The trouble with just tuning for that in that case would be exactly the problem with the A sharp and B flat that we talked about before. And that's why we need equal tuning to have keyboard instruments with only 12 keys. The idea of harmonics can be and was used in the theory of harmony, first created by Jean-Philippe Rameau back in the 18th century. I mentioned that secular music began in the high Middle Ages with troubadours in France and also with Meister singers in German-speaking regions. Secular music had again led to the introduction of thirds, the desire to change keys or modulate, and then, but if I now talk about the C major, and I take the C and E and G, I get that major triad chord. This is called the tonic chord. But this chord, C, F, 
is called the subdominant, and this chord, D, F, G, B, is called the dominant seventh. But in the key of B flat major, two flats, E flat and B flat, the tonic chord, E flat, D, F, the subdominant, B flat, E flat, G flat, and the dominant seventh, C, E flat, F, A. But notice in this dominant seventh, I've got the note C, F, A. And that chord, C, F, A, is also the subdominant in C major. And it's also the tonic in F major. Okay, so that I can use that chord as a means of changing from one key to another key. I can change from C to uh, B flat or from, um, from C to F for F to B flat, etc. It's a pivot chord in changing or modulating from one key to another. The work of Rameau was centered on the idea of harmony as the basis of melody. While not all composers would agree with this concept today, much of the great works of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven are based on these three chords, the tonic, the subdominant, and the dominant seventh, and the modulations that come from them. Now, again, if I consider a plucked violin string, one plucked in the middle, and this means that the middle is raised up and released, then this is the fundamental. But the next harmonic requires the string to be at rest in the middle and therefore is totally absent. And so for all the harmonics that require that point to be at rest, they will all be missing. As harmonics add a clearness and brilliance, the lack of half of them would seriously affect the tone. A string that's not plucked at a point not in the middle will have more harmonics in it, which is why pizzicato strings from violinists and string players is plucked closer to the bridge. Violinists, of course, also learn how to touch a string rather than pressing it against the keyboard to get higher notes, harmonic notes as they are called, of course. All harmonics except for the fundamental have points along a string that do not move. In the first harmonic, as I've said, the middle of the string does not move up and down. And of course, the ends never move as they're fixed. Bowing obviously moves a point on the string, and any harmonic with a point not in motion at that point cannot exist. Where a violinist bows the string affects the number of harmonics and the quality of the sound. Bowing a violin near the fingerboard or near the bridge will affect the harmonics and therefore the sound. Such bowing has lovely Italian names as soltasto for bowing over the fingerboard and sul ponticello for bowing close to the bridge. All instruments need something to start the vibrations. This is called the generator. A string, for example, pulled aside by a violin bow, vibrates and is the generator of the sound waves. But strings are small and they move very little air, so they make very little sound. So I need a resonator or an amplifier. The wooden body of the violin filled with air is the amplifier. This moves a lot of air and therefore makes a big sound. We also need a radiator to get the sound out into the air and to the ear of the listener. 
violin sound comes primarily from the F-holes in the top called the belly of the instrument. Wind instruments are different. There's no string to vibrate, and the generator is either the vibrations of the lips of the player in brass instruments, a cane reed for oboes, clarinets, and bassoons, or just the edge of the mortise, that raised little piece on the flute, which is a so-called edge instrument. The amplifier is the tube itself, and the, the radiator is the bell at the end of the instrument. By trial and error over centuries, the makers of brass and wind instruments have managed to make them vibrate in ways that are basically identical to that of the string and the violin. This is really quite an achievement and a real tribute to people over generations who have worked so hard. Most brass and woodwinds have not changed much in over 150 years. The great masters of Cremona, who lived and worked in the late 16th and early 17th century, have made such marvelous instruments that few improvements have been made since that time. We have learned how to make very similar instruments, and science has recorded many of the details involved. Such information, which was not always passed on by the Cremona makers, although fortunately Amati passed his information on to Stradivarius, but this information will now be available to future generations of instrument makers. And so to end, when five scientists finally unravel the neurological underpinnings of music, as I believe they will, the reason for its effect, its appeal, its longevity, they will be providing an explanation of how emotional and motivational factors are intertwined with purely perceptual ones. As both a scientist and a music lover, I do not regard understanding as harming emotional response, but rather as adding an additional layer of pleasure in the double delight of emotional response and rational explanation. When I look at a rainbow and I marvel at its beauty, the fact that I understand what is happening within the water droplets of the air and why there is sometimes a double rainbow whose colors are inverted, that makes the rainbow even more glorious and wonderful. Understanding how the violin works for me adds to the wonder and the sense of awe at what the masters of Cremona were able to do in the 18th century. For me, at least, understanding just adds to the appreciation of such a marvelous phenomenon as music, that most wonderful of art forms. Thank you very much for listening. Peter Turin and Kickstart present Stephen Sondheim's musical thriller, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, a wickedly funny and decadent evening at the theater starring Jonathan Rocksmith and Sharon Williams Ross as the legendary barber and his cohort. Only at Peter Turin's Theatre on the Bay from the 19th of February. Book now for the closest shave you will ever know.